listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So we're getting close to spring turkey season in Ontario. Do you partake? I do. Um, so I'll say that COVID made for the most turkey hunting I've ever done um, <laughs> for two reasons. First, it was a great year. Like it was just, it was a nice year to be out. Uh, and my, I have an eight year old, well, she was seven at the time, but eight year old daughter now and her dance classes were canceled. And so we went hunting pretty much every weekend of, uh, of turkey season. And it was great. And it got to the point where she's like, we're coming back tomorrow. Right. And I'd be like, okay, we'll be back tomorrow. So it was, it was an awesome season. I've, I've hunted turkeys for a fair number of years, but 2020 was just a great turkey season. And we actually didn't get a bird, came really close, got clocked by a, a Tom at one point, and he just hung up right outside of range. But uh, that was awesome season. Wow. Especially with a, uh, with a kid like that, that's gotta be so exciting if when it's gobbling and. So the craziest thing was this, this, I didn't hear a gobble the entire season. Um, but we saw lots of birds and they were just like silent. This one Tom, like we looked up and he was like sitting there just outside of range and tried to get him to come in and he wouldn't. And then he wanders like 300 meters down the field and goes into a bush line. And I'm like, oh, this guy's, this guy's gone. I got my binoculars on that, that tree line. And then I see a hen come out of that tree line. And then I see him come out after that, that hen. And I'm like, oh, I bet if I can get that hen to come back here, he'll come back here. And so I, I'm, I'm not a great caller, but I'm doing my thing. And I pull that hen all the way, you know, back across that field. And he comes with her and then stays right outside of range the whole time. So <laughs> oh, but it, man. Was, it was some exciting turkey hunting. Wow. What a, what a great, what a great experience. What a great, great way to get a kid, kid in, into wanting to go like, yeah, no more dance class, dad, let's go turkey hunting. <laughs> yeah. And then we yeah. did the same thing for deer on, on the same farm in the fall. So it was a, that's definitely my 2020 highlight. Oh, awesome. I always thought, you know, there's the, the Tom Turkey gobble and the bugle of an, of an elk. And I would love to have a kid out when they hear those things, then afterwards ask them to draw what they think that thing looks like. <laughs> yeah. And I don't it, think anybody uh, would draw a turkey having heard a gobble. No. Oh, no. I don't like, know. I would just, it would be an interesting exercise uh, uh -huh. to, to kind of see what, uh, especially, you know, like I'm, you know, kids have probably seen turkeys, you know, that, uh -huh. you know, like in a family like yours that hunts and stuff, they, they would know. But, uh, if somebody hadn't like, what do you draw? So what do you think that thing we'll looks like? Maybe put that out to the listeners. If you take your kid out turkey hunting this, uh, this spring and you hear a gobble and don't see it, get them to draw it and send us in the, uh, the pictures. That'd be, that'd no, be a totally. Cool little... <laughs> <laughs> that'd be, I love to see what you get like that. Variety would be amazing. I just, I would envision like some of those prehistoric birds, you know, because the kids have probably seen those, you know, mm -hmm. those those halfway between the 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 reptilian predators and and the birds with feathers and the you know they're well, eight feet tall and the big are. Beard. the uh, <laughs> the ter terror birds. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those things. 
yeah, that's that's what I would envision uh, uh, the kids. Well, that's that's something like that must make a sound like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so turkey but populations are doing well. They are. We um, we actually just uh, opened up a new fall hunting season in one of our wildlife management units because the spring harvest had been high enough over years that it met the criteria. Um, yeah, like our, our turkeys, you know, they've been expanding pretty steadily. Um, lots of tur- wild turkey hunting opportunities. Um, really one of the things I think, you know, the Ontario hunting community is super proud of the role we played in it and, and just the benefits of it now is, is awesome. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, you know, here in the West, we kind of struggle with the fact that the Miriam's wild turkey is non-native. Um, interestingly enough, there were fossils found in Idaho uh, around American Falls of the current modern wild turkey, North American wild turkey, that predate the last ice age and the upper, what scientists showed what they thought was the upper range, upper, upper end of that, what that, that point would have represented, um, was only a few hundred kilometers from the Canadian border. So (laughs) I'm like, yeah, they might've been here pre-glaciation, but that doesn't satisfy, you know, people to say that they're, they're, uh, they're, they're native. And so the cool thing is, is the Easterns, uh, on Southern Ontario and Quebec, I believe, right. Mm -hmm. Is the only true native range of the wild turkey in in Canada. And I think like, it's interesting because the Ontario that they were reintroduced into was not necessarily the Ontario that they were extirpated from in the first place. Um, Cause we, it's changed a lot. Right. And it's just, we're really seeing the Ontario now it has been really, really good for turkeys, which is kind of a there it's, it's kind of cool to have a species that did well in what Ontario used to be that also does well in what Ontario like looks like now it's just it's very frequently you're a species that's one of the two right like it wasn't here or wasn't somewhere previously but that area has now changed that it's good for that animal um and so I, i find that an interesting kind of dynamic with wild turkeys yeah i mean that's that's a super interesting way to look at it um you know when when you look at the subspecies in north america and the different habitats that they're adapted to like you know, from the Goulds, you know, sort of almost being like shrub step, semi-desert type birds um, through to the Easterns and, you know, and the the hardwood forests and stuff of the East, like a super adaptable, they live in Florida, a super adaptable species. So that must be part of their success in North America is kind of living through the ebb and flow of habitat changes. So as, as kind of like a, a black bear tie-in, uh, a couple of years ago in the spring, I followed a hot tip from the OFAH's fisheries biologist, who's like a, a real hardcore bear hunter, that he was hunting in this this chunk of public forest not too far from us. And uh, he told me that every time he went in bear baiting, he saw like really big toms in this area. And it, it was really cool because it's, it's pretty big woods in there and so myself my brother and one of my friends went in and hunted in there for a weekend because just the idea of you know a big woods turkey would be really cool and 
just did not see a single bird found i think the grand total was we found a single feather and it was old and we put in some time but um yeah it was just it, it's it was a really cool opportunity because i'm like oh, it's not somewhere we've hunted turkeys before so let's let's get in there and see what we can do well, you'll have to repay the favor and say, hey, I found this spot where there's these turkeys and there's this really big black bear. <laughs> yeah. He's got some spots now, so I don't think I can uh, lure him away. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, maybe a fishing spot or something. So, uh, man, one day, uh, it's kind of a dream. I'd love to get over to Ontario and partake in, in a hunt of the Eastern wild turkey. Um, just not, you know, not too interested in you know, going down to the States for the different subspecies, but just the fact that it's Canada's bird too, um, mm -hmm. that, that kind of really interests me from the perspective of a Canadian. So maybe one day post, post COVID. Come on over. No, that would be, Find that would be a few spots. awesome. Totally. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, we'll get you over and chase the Rocky mountain wild Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> so. I think it's, it's funny. I think every hunter, their dream is to hunt where they're not right like yeah you'll have great opportunities where you are and you'll be like oh, i love hunting here but there's that one hunt over there that i really want to do well that's part of i think that's part of the experience of a hunter right is like exploration and and just sort of the challenge of new new areas and and learning like if you you get to a point where something is kind of like you kind of got it dialed in. You're kind of looking for something that's going to like humble you and set you back kind of thing. Right. So, I mean, if you're just strictly harvesting for food, which I do, I love getting to that point where I kind of <laughs> have it dialed in. Um, but then there's a part of me too, that's just sort of like, it's neat to learn. It's just neat to learn. And sometimes getting outside of your home hunting grounds really forces you as a hunter to read a landscape and, mm -hmm. No, it would be, that would be exciting. Yeah. I love the idea of exploring through hunting, right? Like I want to check out that area and I'll, I know I'll just dive more into it if I'm hunting something that's there. I've, I've said that before and I was talking about that a little bit, I don't know, on social media or whatever this winter, like encouraging people to get out and um, partake in snowshoe hare hunting. And I said, at least for me and hoping that others, you know, if, if they did this, I experience wildlife and habitat and nature and what's going on out there completely different when I have a firearm in my hand mm -hmm. than when I'm just sort of recreating. It's like, as you know, it's like when you got firearm in hand, even if it's snowshoe hair, you are in the mode. You're looking for every subtle clue and relationship and when was here, why was it here, why did it cross, all this sort of stuff. And even if you don't get them, to me, that, that experience of trying to read and understand what's going on is important for hunters because you will take that knowledge forward into discussions or conversations to say, you know, Hey, there's this relationship I'm seeing between X and Y in this area. And I'm concerned about this habitat or, you know, those sorts of things. And, and I believe hunters have that level of understanding because they're hunting 
as opposed to, you know, a cross country skier that goes by and it's like, oh, there was a snowshoe hare running across in front of me. Like if that was a hunter, it would be like, oh my God, like everybody <laughs> stop. It's like, we got to figure out why this hare crossed exactly here. Right. And yeah, it's just. No, I, I totally agree. I find for me, it's when I'm hunting, I'm in nature as opposed to observing nature. No, that's a good way to put it too. Yep. Yeah, because if you're not in it, then you are going to be just an observer. <laughs> so yeah. come home with your tags. Uh, no, cool, man. Uh, turkey season. It's it's coming. Mm -hmm. We're excited about it. Hey, everybody. It's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. Uh, this episode of the Hunter Conservationist podcast is sponsored by Deluxe Wall Tents. These are Canadian-made wall tents for Canadian conditions. We bought one a couple years ago and have used it in almost every condition imaginable. Hot early September days to cold, snowy, mid-October goat hunts. These tents hold up. This product is one we actually use and we love it. We're not trying to peddle you some trendy item. These tents are the real deal, man. They are awesome. I love ours. I love our tent. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Pair it with a couple cots and some cushy sleeping bags and a wood stove. You'll be cocooned in luxury for your next hunting adventure. They got Deluxe wall tents is cool too. Sorry. They, uh, so they're on the Island, Cobble Hill yeah. and, um, family owned business. Yeah, so that's totally. awesome. Yeah. They got, uh, they got three models. They have the deluxe model, which has a wicked porch feature. That's the one that, uh, that we have. They have their standard standard model, which is basically what it sounds. It's pretty standard. It's for the rugged outdoors person who don't need no bells and whistles. And then they have the insulated model. Uh, they have an outside layer of canvas with insulation fabric on the inside. Every tent is made with high quality marine grade canvas with a range of features and sizes. Uh, these guys can, even custom build something for you to fit your needs. So if you're looking to up your camp game, ditch your rickety old trailer and go check out the folks at deluxewalltents.com. They sell everything from tents to game bags, cots, and they even sell electric bear fencing for your camp. Uh, we love them and go check them out. We'd also like to thank the folks over at iHunter for supporting this episode. iHunter is a fantastic tool to help you navigate out in the woods, arming you with management unit-specific regulations, showing you your limited entry permit zones, and even a subscription-based feature showing you public and private land. It's an incredibly useful feature. Like I said in the last episode, we use it almost every day out hunting, especially when paired with the private and crown land feature. It's fantastic. And iHunter has a feature where you can put drop pins in the shape of little tents to mark where your deluxe wall tent is. Exactly. So you can Pair find it in the dark and get the porch. The porch the por is a lifesaver. The porch is sweet. <laughs> sweet. Awesome. Appreciate it, everybody uh, supporting us. So we're joined today by Dr. Keith Monroe, wildlife biologist with the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. Welcome. Thanks for having me. No, it's uh, it's awesome that you could make it. Uh, took a little bit for us to connect in your busy schedule, but uh, this is going to be this is going to be awesome. So maybe kick us off a little bit here and paint the picture for folks of the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. No, totally. So 
the OFAH, we're a, a membership-based organization with a conservation-first mission. So um, everything we do, whether it's related to hunting, to trapping, to fishing, it's all with that you know conservation lens. And it's we want to make sure that what we're doing now encourages and ensures that we can enjoy the natural resources now into the future. Um, and when I say membership-based, we are, you know, our people, you know, join the OFAH, and then it's our members that actually drive what the OFAH does. So we've got about, you know, 100,000 sort of members, supporters, and subscribers all across the province um, in nine different zones. Um, and all of those zones have elected representatives and then those elected representatives make up our board of directors and then it's the board of directors that set OFH policy which then professional staff like myself you know enact and I think that's really important especially as you get talking to black bears because what the OFH does is represent the voice of our members and there's that direct grassroots line from you know the individual hunter angler member all the way up to our policy and, and every member gets a say or can't have their say and you know where they think the federation should go um and i think that's a, a super powerful tool and a super um just a super organization that i really enjoy being a part of because of that grassroots conservation link oh yeah i mean totally that's i think one of the the values of the federation model is exactly that and and kind of what we were just talking about in the opening, right? Like just like the hunters and even the anglers, they're on the landscape, they're seeing these things. So where, where do they raise that? Where do they take that, that eye on the ground, boots on the ground thing? And that's where, you know, sort of the local club, the regional to the, to the federation level um, is a really cool model in Canada. And I love it. And I always encourage people to, you know, belong to organizations that you like and that align with things that, that you like, uh, and to always belong to your provincial or territorial federation, uh, or association for, for that exact reason, that collective voice. Mm -hmm. We're all, we're all more powerful when we talk together sort of thing. No, totally. hundred thousand members so and subscribers. Yeah. So there's a difference. Yeah, so we've got people that, that interact with the Federation in different ways. So you could be a, a member, an individual member. You could be a member of a, a member club, and we've got 725 of those across the province. Um, we also have people who aren't members but donate to support the OFH and the work we do. And then we also have our magazine, um, which all of our members receive, but then um, you know, other people subscribe to as well. So it's it's... Um, it's really that broader voice, you know, even beyond our direct membership that, that I think rely on the OFH for, for news, for information, um, to keep them updated and connected with sort of what's going on with hunting, angling and trapping in the province. No, that's cool. Yeah. I've, um, I've met, um, your exec director, you know, over here in BC, uh, you know, one time, and I think he gave a presentation, when I was on the board of the BC Wildlife Federation and I'm just absolutely blown away at how structured and, and the, the diversity of things, the business model that's attached 
to the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, it's just, in my opinion, it's, it's like the, it's the bar in Canada. <laughs> Thanks. We, we definitely work hard to be that. Um, I, I just kind of personally for me, I came from a, a background of very much focused on white-tailed deer biology and that, that diversity of things that we work on at the OFH is one of the things I like the best about my job because I could be working on, you know, moose in the morning, get pulled into, you know, a rough grouse meeting at lunch and then be, you know, talking about black bears in the afternoon. And that's just, that's super fun. And then canceling the rest of your week because your daughter wants to go turkey hunting. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is a good place to work if, you know, you need a flexible schedule to go hunting. It's pretty understood. Yep. Got to, got to cancel my meetings. One of my kids is sick. <laughs> sick. Or, you know, research and development days. Yeah. Yeah. P- PD. Mm-hmm. Um, so the area we want to dive into with you here is a topic that we first started researching and talking to our listeners about last summer. Uh, we did an episode on the future of black bear hunting in Canada and kind of started out, you know, with the history of the species of black bears, their subspecies, uh, just, you know, all, all that sort of stuff to, um, you know, different things about how they're managed uh, across Canada, the different jurisdictions, all of that kind of stuff. One of the things I found fascinating in Canada uh, when I was doing that research was black bears occupy, I think the number was 98% of their historical range in Canada. And that to me is a testament of uh Canada's conservation model in keeping the common species common. And we've managed mm-hmm. to do that with the black bear. We're struggling in other areas, but the black bear, in my opinion, is a modern conservation success because they are still almost everywhere where they were pre-contact. So that's mm-hmm. that's cool. Yeah. And then we dove into kind of a little bit about the situation in Ontario, uh, having lost its spring black bear hunt, uh, and then the, the hunt coming back, there was a pilot, I believe you'll probably talk about. And then, and then kind of the, the reopening last spring. So, um, that, that was a pretty serious thing when that happened. Yeah, it's, and this is one of those issues that has such a history at the Federation, right? Like, you know, more than 20 years, this has been something that has been happening and it's been, you know, forefront of everything we've been doing. Um, and I think, you know, you, you touched on, you know, bears occupying so much of their their native or their historical range, you know, in Canada. And I, I think hunters should be proud of their direct role in that. So, you know, the black bear story in Ontario like modern black bear management story really starts in like the early 1960s because before that in Ontario, black bear were vermin and shot under a bounty system in the the forties, right up until the start of the sixties. And it was, you know, the OFAH and hunters in Ontario that advocated for them to be, um, you know, recognized as a game species and managed and to, you know, be recognized to have value. Um, and then, you know, all the things that get unlocked when a species 
gets recognized or gets classified as a game species, you know, management funding and focus and attention and all that. So that's one thing I always try to drive home, especially to, you know, people sort of outside, you know, the hunting biology community is just that, you know, hunting is a big part of why we have black bears in the province um, and, and recognized and valued because they're, they're an incredible animal. And I would actually challenge people to find someone who likes black bears more than like a hardcore black bear hunter. Cause when you hunt black bears, you are so into it and so fascinated by them. Um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's well, really are, evident to see. These are, these are the people in, in the hunting circles. Then I do believe like black bears are one of them. Like these are the people that are reading scientific studies. They're reading, they're, they're getting like text biology textbooks and stuff because they're, they're driven to like understand more about the species, the history, the evolution, their biology, ecology, all that kind of stuff as part of their just holistic understanding of an animal that they're interested in hunting, but it's a, um, and then that translates in, into, you know, um, conservation advocacy, but I don't know too many other places where people have a passion that actually like dig into the scientific literature and read papers to try to inform themselves. But, uh, there are definitely hunters out there that do. And, and, um, it's pretty cool when they can, when they can use some of that, that back in their com- public conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a black bear hunter is a great advocate for just bear management, especially when they hit that level of knowledge. It's just, it's, it's awesome. It's Absolutely. Great. So, so pre, pre ban, um, so that was 1999. Mm-hmm. So kind of what, what a little bit was sort of like the picture of black bear hunting in Ontario, um, highly subscribed, not very much, like kind of what, what did it mean to, to Ontarians? So black bears always kind of been the sort of least popular of our, you know, widespread big game species. Um, so moose, uh, white-tailed deer, and then black bear. We do have elk in the province as part of a restoration program. Um, and there is a small hunt in Southern Ontario, but it, it's such a small population that it is it, really not like, you know, a widely hunted, you know, species. Um, just to kind of give like a, a sort of a, a sort of snapshot now, um, you know, you have about 190,000 people that hunted deer in 2019, you have 90,000 people that hunted moose. Um, and then you had, you know, 25 to 30,000 you hunted black bear. Um, and a lot of black bear hunting both now and then is people hunting black bears opportunistically while hunting, you know, moose or, or deer. So prior sort of when the first seasons were put in in 1961, um, which is actually a September 1st to June 30th season of the next year. So it was essentially both a fall and a spring season. Um, the hunter numbers kind of went up and down as various different management sort of regimes came in, peaking, you know, in the in the 80s at roughly between you know 35 and 40,000 and one of the things that, that sort of differentiated, you know, 
black bear hunting from white-tailed deer and moose is that it always had a very large non-resident component to it. So a lot of people from outside of Ontario. Um, that's actually changed now. We can get into it when we talk about the return of the spring bear hunt. Um, but it was always that non-residents made a, a big chunk of the of the black bear hunter population. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. So walk us up to the 1999 decision. What, what was going on with black bear management? So it was really not about black bear management. Um, what it was, was a false narrative around cub orphaning that was building in the groups opposed to, to the spring black bear hunt. Um, so there was, there was, this was happening, you know, for, for several years before 1999. Um, and there was this building narrative that, um, you know, hunters in the spring were orphaning black bears. And there was a couple of numbers that got thrown around. First, it was, you know, in the thousands, you know, black bear, you know, um, hunters are orphaning thousands of black bear cubs each year. And then it, it narrowed in on this really interesting number of 274. And 274 is a funny number because it's now got a legacy in Ontario. And what this was, was um, Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry scientists um, were hearing these, these claims of, you know, thousands of cubs orphaned. And they were like, just biologically, that, that can't be right. And so they went... And they took the harvest data and they took the demographic data for the bears. So, you know, what age did they come pregnant? You know, what's their average litter size? And they tried to figure out what's the maximum number of cubs that could be orphaned in a year if there were no protections on females and females with cubs were just as susceptible to harvest as, as any other bear. And that number they came up with was 274 basically the idea we're, we're, we're going to refute this thousands number by like an actual number and once again that that 274 is still an overestimate because there are protections on females with cubs in the spring season you, you can't shoot a female with you can't shoot the female with cubs or cub in the spring season and then because of sort of bear behavior females with cubs are less susceptible to harvest on their own so it's kind of so, a worst case scenario thing yeah. to ap appease everybody, sort of. Yeah, just just kind of you know, these numbers that we're going throwing around were, were were way you know beyond anything possible. Um, but then what happened was that that the people opposed to um, the spring bear hunt said then started saying, well, the MNRF is saying that 274 cubs are being orphaned each year. And it got to the point where the chief black bear research scientist for Ontario, Martin Obard, had to write or felt he had to write a letter in International Bear News explaining the situation because he was worried that his colleagues in other jurisdictions would think that Ontario black bear management was asleep at the switch. So in that, he himself said at that time that, you know, the orphaning of cubs by black bears, or sorry, the offering of cubs by black bear hunters was an extremely rare event. And so 
I think in, in our emails back and forth, you asked about like sort of the evidence for this whole cub, cub orphaning thing. And it really wasn't there. Like it was very much people were making claims and then repeating claims to support this idea that, that cub orphaning was happening when it, if it, if it, you know, if it was, it was extremely rare. Yeah. But yeah. unfortunately that got traction. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, we've talked about that on other podcasts before, where we talk about um, the three truths that um, Neil, the the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, talks about uh, objective truth, personal truth, and political truth. And political truth <laughs> is when you say something in the public forum and you repeat it enough, then people then accept it as being something that's true. So that uh, that sounds exactly like what this does, and and uh, and then they they latched on to that that government number and created a narrative around it. And man, that was, so that was pre 1999. This was going on and this, this kind of thing is still happening. Like right now today, this very scenario, it's crazy. Well, what happened was when we were in the consultations for the return of the spring bear hunt, like the end of the pilot was ending and we wanted certainty that there was going to be like a permanent spring bear hunt in the area, in the province, that 274 number came up. And people started citing it all over again. Um, and so we, you know, we're a science-based organization. We do a lot of work to make sure that if, if we're saying something, we can back it up. And if we have been saying something and the new science comes out and we realize it's not accurate, we, you know, we, we update. We try to stay accurate. That's the and process. So, yeah. So but we're here now trying to, you know, debunk a 274 <laughs> cub number that was debunked 20 years ago sort of thing. So. Uh. Well, yeah. well, how long has the Area 51 thing been going on? That was before I was born. So it's like, I said the old, what's the thing about the, whatever the oldness die hard or whatever mm-hmm. that saying is. But so the, the last spring, spring black bear hunt in Ontario was 98. The band mm-hmm. came into effect in 99. Okay. It, it did. And it, it came into effect quite suddenly to the to the degree that um two weeks before this the ban happened um apparently the minister of natural resources and forestry was all actually giving he gave a speech and he talked about how the spring is a great time to hunt black bears for all the kind of reasons that we talk about um you know opportunity you know meat and all this sort of stuff um and then two weeks later um through some pretty intense sort of political pressure um the government announced that they were canceling the spring bear hunt Jeez, huh maybe the first speech was at a fundraising banquet or something <laughs> you don't have to answer that um wow that's uh that's crazy um i mean kind of similar sort of timelines that happened here in british columbia with the grizzly hunt um kind of a bunch of conversations about modified hunts and meat retention. And then it was just like, wham, there was the, the announcement of, of a total closure. But uh, yeah, that's, that's the political world that, that, uh, that everybody lives in, but there was still, the fall hunt was still (laughs) right. So was there any like, like huge shift or did, was anything happen? Like did the fall become more popular? Did it just stay the same? So over, over time, we've definitely seen 
bear hunting in Ontario become more popular? And it's it's interesting. In an article on the spring bear hunt, one of our writers, Steve Gallia, he said um, spring bear hunt or bear hunting in Ontario is kind of like what happens when you tell a teenager not to do something. They just want to do it more. And if you look at the number of bear hunters in the province, it started climbing from right around 1999. And that's probably because groups like the OFH were just talking about bear hunting so much that people got interested in it. Um, so you see a real climb starting like 1999. And it wasn't until you know 2014 that the very first of the pilot season started. So in that gap, it was increased interest in, in essentially fall bear hunting. Cause that was, that was all that we had at that time. Um, that was on the resident side, on the non-resident side, you really saw the numbers drop and then they've stayed constant. Um, I think at around 5,000, you know, annually, and they've stayed constant, you know, since 1999, pretty much with a, a little bit of variation. Um, right. Yeah. So for outfitters, the spring season black bears would have been that would have been the primary booking of of a hunter to come in in the fall it probably would have been more like what you said an opportunistic hunt if they got their moose they got their caribou like whatever then they would say okay you got like three days left let's try to get a black bear kind of thing but not not the the bread and butter of this of the spring hunt yeah the spring hunt and in this for the outfitter industry it was a couple of things like it was a very it's a very unique hunt and it was also in sort of a shoulder season when there wasn't a lot of necessarily other stuff going on. And we're talking a lot of, you know, Northern Ontario. So, you know, smaller towns, and then you have a ripple effect. It's not just the outfitter, it's the local businesses because you don't have, you know, tourists coming in and spending money in restaurants and buying gas and all that sort of stuff. So it, it was my understanding quite a big hit for the, the northern tourism industry that I don't think was actually ever really quantified to say, you know, how much okay. of it was. Yeah, I, I definitely had read the same thing that uh, the farther north you got into Ontario, probably smaller communities, you know, very dependent on, you know, hunters coming in and renting motels and restaurants and all that kind of stuff that that was, that was a pretty, pretty hard hit in the north. Yeah. And, and one thing we didn't really see throughout the course of the pilot you know program was a real uptake by the tour or by the outfitters and i think that's because I'm, I'm in no way an expert on the outfitter industry um but i think part of it is that when something was just a pilot there might have been a hesitancy to like invest in you know advertising material and infrastructure and that sort of stuff for a hunt that was going to end january 15th 2020 right yeah and you probably get some, um, you know, hunters that can shop around and they got lots of places in North America to go for a black bear. There's probably like the stock market. There's probably a factor of like, like, uh, confidence and, and where, where they invest. So, um, now what are some of the, what are, so in, when the band kicked in, there was, there was like 20 years period. I, I had read like a number of different things that were starting to come out as, as metrics or things that were happening with the bear population because of the, the, the hunt loss, uh, the big one kind of being around the whole issue of, um, human wildlife conflict. Um, was that something 
real that was happening? Were, were you guys actually seeing like some marked changes? So human bear conflicts always really tricky to quantify. And part of the challenge in Ontario is that the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry really made, they standardized how they do their human bear conflict reporting in 2004. So several years after that, um, after the cancellation was in place, there was definitely an uptick in reported you know, human bear conflict following the spring bear hunt. Um, one of the interesting things about human bear conflict is it's really like a two, two thing system. Like it's the bear, but it's also the people as well. And what both of those are doing, you know, influences things. It's essentially, you know, is the bear there? Is the bear doing something that people don't want it to do? Does someone see it? And then is someone bothered enough you know, or concerned enough to report it. And, you know, there's been a few papers that have, have pointed out that, you know, likely what happened was, you know, there became increased frustration on the fact, on the part of like Northern Ontario residents, especially who, you know, are really upset with this decision to cancel the spring bear hunt and now are, you know, experiencing, you know, human bear conflict and their tolerance is just, is, is, is lower um, because of this, you know, perceived, or I think justifiably perceived view that the government is not doing what they should do with return in response to, or in terms of black bear management in general. So um, yeah, there was an increase in, you know, human bear conflict reports um, and really, if people are reporting human bear conflicts, it, it is an increase in human bear conflicts because now it's, it's going to the, the level that people feel like they need to report it. Right. Um, yeah. And so part of that too, I've had others in this field sort of tell me that when you create these campaigns to make the public aware of, you know, attractant management and sort of saying, if a bear comes on your property, phone this number. Um, and, and that sort of gets instilled into people. It's sort of like when you see smoke in the summertime, it's a forest fire, you report it. You don't, it, it's not sort of, okay, if it's a bit of smoke, don't worry. But if it's this big, huge mushroom cloud, then phone us. It's just like, it's everything. So the, the public gets conditioned to a bear walked by my barn at the end of my field they phone it and it becomes, you know, a data point where maybe before it's just sort of like, oh yeah, there's a bear walked by, he didn't come to the house that night, who cares? So that's what I've also been told too, is that how that message gets delivered to the public drives the number of, of calls, the number of reports, the data points. It doesn't necessarily mean more bears were being on top of people. It's just, they're being told to report everything. Yeah, in the whole like the whole side of human, I've spent some time in like sort of the human wildlife conflict field, and human bear conflict is fascinating because it is so influenced by so many things that you would not you would not even think about. I was just reading a paper from uh, Minnesota, um, and they were talking about how they started to see calls going down with related to garbage um, because they had been doing education campaigns on, you know, properly storing your garbage. But those calls actually were replaced by calls with regards to bird feeders 
because bird feeding became more popular in the 90s in in northern Minnesota. And it's just a very strange, like, you know, something that you think would not be related. It's just, you know, well, people like seeing birds and then translates into human bear conflict. Um, There's another paper in Ontario that specifically looked at human bear conflict, and they found that they had to um, run the data both with and without reports from this this one specific district in in Ontario, because that one district had enough human bear conflict to potentially skew the data for the whole province, and that oh, was because it's a it's outside of a, a big nickel mining hub, and the smelting operations created great habitat for blueberries to grow, <laughs> which then brought in a lot of black bears, and it's you know things that you would not even think about as having influenced you know human bear conflict are just they, they just emerge in these things yeah i know here in british columbia the bc conservation officer service is really like um taking a strong position on this of responding to the calls but if the landowner is violating the wildlife act in like making attractants available, then they're writing abatement orders. Mm. And so I, you know, from what I understand in some cases, it's like, I had a bear come and do this or whatever. They roll in and it's just like, they got stuff everywhere. And it's like, Hey, you're the one that's getting, getting the abatement order. I'll be back in 48 hours, you know, kind of thing. And I could see just in the whole human psyche of things, right. It's like people flashing their lights on the highway. They know there's a radar set up and pretty soon the police officer's like, okay, I got to move. Cause you know, I've been busted where that could then start to influence people like don't phone in. They don't come and trap the bear. They give you a ticket. <laughs> So I think, I think the whole point here is for the Ontario situation is this whole narrative around the increasing human bear conflict being directly a, uh, a causal factor of the hunt ban, the, the, the ban of the spring hunt is not necessarily like cause and effect relationship because there's too many things to tease out. Is that fair? So I think at its... You know, at its core, when the spring bear hunt was canceled, people reported more human bear conflict. So at least on the human side of things, it it was a real thing that was happening. Like um, uh, that same that same paper, the Minnesota paper really pointed out that a really key thing for hunting is the social acceptability or the social tolerance of an animal. there's been some some cool work on um, on various sort of species that do agricultural damage, and, and the general trend is, you know, if it's a species that's hunted, the tolerance is is a bit higher than a species that's not hunted, and in my kind of view, that's you know, that's people having that trade off. It's it's cost benefit. It's you know, if a hunter sees a bear in a field and it's doing damage, and there's no hunting season that bear is, is doing damage and there's a, there's a negative associated with it. But if it's doing damage, but there's also a hunting season and that farmer who's maybe also a hunter says, you know, well, in the fall, there's a benefit to that or spring, there's a benefit to that bear being there. Um, so maybe I will, maybe I'm a little more tolerant of the damage because you know, I see the benefit to it. And, you know, you've seen trends like that with white-tailed deer and Canada geese, um, 
where the, the damage tolerance for those is higher than species that, that aren't hunted. Yeah. I remember uh, a few years ago, so back to wild turkeys. So their population is really increasing in Southern British Columbia and they're starting to become problematic in urban areas where some of the flocks are like just taking up residence, like, you know, the urban deer problem, all this kind of stuff. And one of the wildlife managers, I was talking to him one day and he's just like, just inundated with calls from the public about do something about these turkeys. You know, they're in my yard, they're standing on my car, all this kind of stuff. And he said, so for example, he goes, here's one of the complaints I got. And it's this picture of a guy taking off of his porch of his house and his nice manicured lawn. And there's like 50 turkeys and there's like, there's big strutting toms all over the place. And he goes, see, and I'm like, okay, what's the problem? <laughs> and it was like, yeah. He is like, well, yeah, maybe from your perspective, but yeah, um, I would rather look at turkeys than grass any day of the week. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. And I know, um, Dr. Uh, Clayton Lamb, who we've had on the show a couple of times, he's done some research on grizzly bears in Southeastern BC and the sort of phenomenon of bears getting pulled into um, a valley, the Elk Valley in, in Southern BC. And then they basically, they don't leave and they're trying to coexist and live in amongst people. And they have a really high mortality rate. And I remember talking to him kind of about how things changed socially after the grizzly bear hunt was taken away. And I think, and, and I won't speak for, for Clayton, but it's sort of like there was this social, like, that exactly what you're saying. It's like, because you could no longer hunt them. Now people had a completely, yeah, it's a grizzly bear, not going to get a permit for it in the fall. And so there was the, the, you know, shoot, shovel, shut up kind of thing going on. And he was having bears just kind of like disappear off the landscape and GPS callers showing up in rivers and stuff. So yeah, and it, it's not necessarily just directly the hunters, right? Like it's not just the hunter that that perceives benefit from it, but it's also, you know, if if non-hunters, you know, non-hunters members of the public feel that the government's not doing anything about a situation, like those sorts of things happen, and it could be an animal that's that that's you know, unfortunately the three S's as you said there or it could be you know an animal that is you know shot under a, a nuisance permit in ontario you you can shoot an animal and a bear in defensive property you do have to report it um but those situations themselves are like hunters feel those situations because those are those are animals that are not you know they're being they're being you know shot or in God forbid, you know, buried and hidden and it's illegal where, you know, under a regulated hunting season, those animals would be, you know, a licensed sales would generate funds for wildlife management, but then the animal's going to be valued. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be healthy meat for the family. It's going to be a cool pelt, an awesome skull. Um, and I think that that's something that really gets missed in the broader discussion. You know, the broader public discussion is just, I said at the beginning that value that hunters have for black bears and, and we want to see black bear hunting, you know, continue because it it really reinforces that, that value. Yeah. Um, that That's one that's really getting lost right now in the public discussions as well is trying to have that conversation with the non-hunting public, because those things that you just talked about, 
you know, the license sales, well, people are like, well, that doesn't, you know, just justify it. Um, you know, other things can replace it. And then the use of the pelt, like valuing the hide and valuing a skull, like the other things beyond the meat, then they're the non-hunting public or a portion of them are going, well, that's trophy hunting. It's like, if you bring those things out of the wood or you have, you attach any value whatsoever to those, it's like, aha, we know what your motive is and you don't really care about the meat. And that's become the whole narrative right now is, as you know about where like black bear hunting's being painted as, as trophy hunting because of these things that hunters value. But I think that's an important part of the discussion is, is, you know, values value. And it's, those are some of the things that's helped keeping common species like the black bear on the landscape. So tough one to sell. What like one actual point, <laughs> So, so black bears are by far the most misunderstood, you know, big game species by non-hunters and like the hunting of black bears is, um, like, I think, you know, inherently a non-hunter understands deer hunting or understands moose hunting. Like they, they understand that, but even the idea that, that hunters eat black bears is not necessarily universally known by non-hunters in Ontario. And when we were consult or when we were in the process of like the consultation about the return of the spring bear hunt was happening, um, I was getting emails from, you know, non, non-members who were saying, you know, I support hunting, but only if you're going to eat what you're hunting. And I would respond to them saying, you are legally required there's laws against letting black bear meat going to spoil hunters who are harvesting black bears are harvesting them for the meat. And that's something that I always make sure to, to mention in a, in a media interview, um, especially when it's to like a, a broad non-hunting audience, because it is not, it's, it's not universally known that that's why people are hunting black bears in the province. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I definitely think that's, that is a, a great takeaway message, you know, as well as, is, you know, re- reinforcing that. And I see people doing that. I see a tremendous sort of change in social media of hunters really talking about black bear from the food perspective, right? Showing different things that they're cooking, how, you know, what they do with it, different meals, really, you know, fancy culinary stuff. And I think that's part of, you know, it was always there, but it, I think people are realizing that it's, it's, it needs to be more, more visible, right? Cause there was a narrative kind of created out there, um, that it was just hunters wanting a mount or a rug on the wall kind of thing. And so we're, we're dealing with that legacy. So what did, what did, what Kurt, Kurt, you came up with a new saying the other night on a podcast about oh, yeah, black bears. I said, uh, I said black bears, the new deer. <laughs> <laughs> it just it just seems fitting. Like there's just more people seem to be interested in. And in then it. you you had uh, you had a little. You're like, oh, that'd be a cool T-shirt. And you had this little logo design of a kind of a silhouette of a black bear, but it was all kind of cut out and like like you'd see in those old kind of butcher pictures with cows. You know, like front roast, rump roast, the sort of butcher diagram. But it was all. This that might come out as a bear. t-shirt. So that, uh, that concept is patented by the Hunter Conservationist HD Media <laughs> Inc. And, um, <laughs> now, so during, during the ban period, um, maybe start walking through, um, for folks, what Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters were doing, um, in continuing to advance the cause of 
trying to reinstate the spring hunt. So it kind of came down into two sort of things. Um, there was a, we did a legal challenge around the cancellation. And then over the next two decades, we also did just an intense amount of public advocacy for the return of the spring bear hunt. So on the legal side of things, and I'm, we chat about this at the beginning or before we started, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I'm a biologist. I'm not a lawyer, and I, so I won't. I can't break it down by case law. But uh, essentially, but there's a there's a lot of anti hunting lawyers out there that are biologists. So <laughs> maybe I need to go back. <laughs> to, I, spent, I spent a lot of time in school. I don't know if I can go back and do more law school or law oh. school now. But uh, um, so essentially, what happened was the the hunt was canceled in. Um, in January of 99, in April, us and a couple other, you know, signees um, filed uh, basically a, re- a request for a judicial review of the decision. Our argument was that because of the the influence that was was put onto the government, um, and this was essentially um, some some well-funded, wealthy um, organizations basically said that if the government didn't cancel the spring bear hunt, um, they were going to um, basically support um, candidates from the other party in eight you know, sensitive ridings um, in the upcoming election. So our, the OFH's argument in our, our case was that how the government responded to that pressure was incorrect both from an administrative point of view as to how the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act is supposed to to work, and then also from a constitutional point of view. Um, so, unfortunately, we were ultimately unsuccessful with that lawsuit, but we took it as far as we could. We actually took it all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, ultimately, they chose to not hear the case. But, you know, we spent three years on this, this court case, um, trying to legally overturn this, uh, this, what we thought was, you know, an egregious decision, um, ultimately unsuccessful, but really, you know, took it to the very end, um, just because we felt that, you know, it was sort of the, you know, our duty as who the OFH is with our membership to really not leave that angle exhausted if there was even still a chance, um, Unfortunately, you know, not successful. Um, and what ended up being successful was just constant, relentless political advocacy um, on on this issue. Uh, if you if you look at almost any sort of you know statement, release, product put out by the OFH, you know, over the last twenty years, the return of the spring bear hunt was always in there somewhere because it was such a a key issue, not just for, you know, bear hunters, but for all hunters, because, you know, when, when you lose a hunt, when a hunt is, is gone, it's extremely rare that you get it back. And if a hunt can be taken away in Ontario with no, you know, biological, sustainable, scientific reason, which is what the North American model of wildlife conservation is supposed to be built on. That that speaks. That's a that's a big problem for all hunting. And so we always, you know, 
just kept it in that forefront and pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and did not let it, you know, get backburnered and, and kept it in the forefront of every government that came in. Um, and it was that pressure that, you know, got us the limited pilot, then got us the expanded pilot. And then now, 2021, this is going to be the first season of the returned regular permanent spring bear hunt. Wow. Awesome. So it was, it was really a case of like, you would meet with your elected officials and say, oh, that's very interesting. That reminds me of the spring black bear hunt. <laughs> that, that's not far off. It was, I don't, there were very few meetings that I think did not have, you know, some aspect of the spring bear hunts. And whenever, um, whenever there was a new, there's a provincial election, that would be one of our priorities for the new government. And we would ask the, ask the parties, how will you deal with, you know, a bunch of fish and wildlife questions, but then always the spring bear hunt was in there. And then when they got elected, we would do priorities to the new government and say like, these are the things we hope you do. And then we'd follow up on those. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Highly, highly structured. I mean, that's, that's awesome to see because that's really what it takes uh, for these type of things right now is um, you got to be in it for the long game. Uh, I think that's, that's a big thing that hunters need, need to learn. Um, I guess from the anti-hunting movement is they're in it for the long game. we tend to be short-sighted this season, next season type, type window. So do you think, do you think there's any one particular aspect that finally got the government to move? Was it a change in government, a different party? Was it, they were just tired of you beating away? Was it economics? Like kind of what are all of the above? Like what? I think it's all of the above. And in terms of, you know, the government, it's been different governments have taken like liberal and conservative governments have taken different actions on, on spring bear hunting. Um, the, the pilots came back in under a liberal government. The, um, the, the return of the spring bear hunt was under a conservative government. Um, and it, it's, the OFH is a nonpartisan, you know, organization We're we're a charity, we're nonpartisan. Um, and we just made sure that we engaged with, with everyone and we, you know, we brought it up. We talked about the importance to our members. We made sure that all our arguments were, you know, rooted in, you know, if there was a scientific argument, we made sure we were up to date on that and it was current. Um, one thing you'll see over the course of sort of our advocacy is how our, how we talked about human bear conflict changed because we wanted to make sure that we were, you know, accurate with the scientific information. Um, in uh, 2018, I believe it was, um, a socioeconomic survey did come out about black bear hunting and its contribution to Ontario. Um, we had some estimates from prior to 1999, which said about you know $43 million a year is what black bear hunting contributed to the Ontario economy. Um, and that was, I believe, corrected for inflation. So if we talked about $43 million now, it had been, it wasn't 43 million in 99, it was, 43 million and you know now money um but the new estimate actually found that it was that number had gone up and it was uh, 50.6 million of which about 14 million came just from the spring hunt um and a lot of that money was in in northern ontario in you know smaller smaller rural areas um so really 
when you look at the bigger picture of you know black bear hunting and the spring bear hunt it's a combination of there was never a solid you know sustainability scientific justification for its cancellation in the first place um there's a great socioeconomic you know story to tell behind black bear hunting um it is sustainable and we've got you know both the evidence to show that it's sustainable at the provincial level and the science to make sure it stays that way going forward. Um, and then lastly, it it is, you know, a key tool in the bigger sort of wildlife management toolbox in that, you know, that that paper I referred to a couple of times from Minnesota, they did sh- they they showed that you know, you can reduce human bear conflict through hunting by reducing the size of the population. It's a blunt instrument. It's not a, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, something you definitely want to reach to, but it is something that's important to have in that toolbox. So really it's those sort of messages and just keep putting them out there and, 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 reinforcing it over and over again is is how over you know a couple decades we went from a cancellation to having our spring hunt back huh interesting now was there was there research going on in ontario there was the economic um studies you talked about like who who was picking that up because these types of things like i think highlight gaps in our ability to say, oh, this study or the science is saying this, a lot of times these things are like, oh, there's actually, there is a gap in information. Somebody's got to fill that. And and if you just kind of sit back and hope that, you know, a university academic or a chair picks it up or gets funding for it, was there, was there anything specific going on in Ontario um, to say we've got to get behind or put some funding somewhere to do some research? So I think I to give absolute credit to the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, they've been the ones doing much of the research. So um, the ministry has uh, research scientist positions. So the socioeconomic study was done by a, a MNRF research scientist, um, and it, it, it's their research, and, and you know, and, and they're sharing it, and it's it's they've taken the lead on exploring it. And for that one, it really makes sense that they do it because they have all the, you know, the hunter contact information and they can reach out to, they know who to talk to and get that information. Um, and then on the, on the sort of biology side, same thing. It was, you know, I referred to him earlier, uh, Dr. Martin Obard, the chief um, black bear scientist for the province has done a huge amount of um you know, research on, on black bear demographics and movements and everything like that in the province. And then kind of from a management point of view, um, the province has already also invested in two large population monitoring projects in the province, um, using something called barbed wire hair traps, which is basically you use barbed wire to get genetic material and then you can estimate your population from that. There was one, back in the sort of early 2000s, and we're actually going through a second phase of that now, delayed a bit by COVID as, as everything is. Um, but that's that's one of the reasons why you know we as the OFH feel so positive about black bear management is because we have those tools to 
we being the province has those tools to you know monitor the population if a sustainability concern does pop up we can identify it and address it because it goes back to that you know we want black bears today tomorrow you know i want my daughter that i want turkey hunting i want her to be able to take her kids black bear hunting if they want to sort of thing yeah absolutely well i mean that's Man, that's great to have those those resources within, you know, government, um, you know, doing that research here in British Columbia. Black bear research is pretty much like zero. Uh, one of the only things that I've come across was some analyses that were done in the back end of some grizzly bear uh, reports because in their mark and recapture DNA hair snagging uh, projects for grizzly bears, of course, they get black bears. And uh, so there's like some data that was analyzed on that to come up with. There was a couple of regions in Southern BC where they did some, de- the scientists did some density estimates from, you know, from that. But other than that, it's like, it's really, you know, this is a takeaway message for those in British Columbia that are concerned about the narrative right now on black bear and being trophy hunting and all this kind of stuff is, um, is what Keith's saying, right? Like is how critical science is. And our black bear management plan in British Columbia is dated. I think it was like 1988 hmm. and it's never been touched. And that's the plan that says these are our population estimates, our harvest goals. And, and, you know, wow, that's like, that's, that's out of date. Yeah. And I think, <sighs> And that's part of what we like. What we've always tried to do in Ontario is, is you know, push for investment in the in you know Ontario's game species, um, because it's that you know that sort of scientific rigor and scrutiny is how we make sure that we're you know we we have sustainable populations and sustainable practices going forward. And um, and that our push for that goes all the way from you know asking the government to invest more money in um you know in projects um in pushing them to you know renew or review plans um that that the previous versions are dated for example in 2019 we we the mnrf uh updated their chronic wasting disease uh surveillance and response plan because the past one was from 2005 um and then we're always pushing our members to participate in these programs so like a good example of that is you know um uh, voluntary tooth submission for black bears. So um, hunters can submit a tooth to the to the government and that helps the government assess the age structure of the harvest, which is is really critical for sustainable black bear management. So it's just I think one of the best ways to describe the OFH is we we are involved in every single level of, of the process that's out there um, from our individual members all the way up to you know the folks who are talking with ministers and premiers. Yeah. Well, it's a, yeah, it's definitely a great, a great model. And, and I mean, we definitely see that as being one of the first places that folks that don't want hunting go to is they go to those management plans and they start going through them with a fine tooth comb looking for, for any inconsistency, any, you know, word like anecdotal or, not quite confident in a particular number. And then it's just like, it's, it's, it's the lever that, uh, that gets used. So I keep encouraging 
people, no matter where you are in your province, make sure that you're really on top of the state of where your province or territory's management plan is for a particular species, because this is, this can be uh, an Achilles heel, or it can be your, be your pillar. Um, if you've got, got good science and a good management plan to stand on. So uh, yeah, that's, that's super cool. Now, do you think, so one of the things I see in these debates, you know, especially over things like, you know, bears is there's these spectrums of what people believe and accept uh, for evidence. So you can say, here's the science, here's the numbers, here's the population estimates. They're based on this. These are the confidence intervals. This is our certainty level. This is our harvest numbers, you know, safe. It's been reviewed. Then there's those out there that are just sort of like, well, that's the government controlling their own numbers. They're just, they could make it up. How, how do we know? Right. So there's, there's the doubt that's thrown into the science argument to, to just create that, um, you know, that, that doubt about the authenticity of quote unquote science. And then there's people that I believe in society that are like, you know, if you present just some good sound information, uh, whether they hunt or not, they're kind of like, to me as a reasonable person, that seems reasonable. So I can kind of formulate an opinion. What are your thoughts in Ontario? Like, like, does that, those archetypes exist? And do you kind of feel like most people are okay with some objective information or is it, is it a really tough sell when it comes to science and wildlife management in Ontario? So I say generally, and this is beyond black bears, um, most people that I talk to, and I do a lot of just talking to people, um, my brother jokes that I talk for a living, um, and a, a lot of people, when you give them new information, they, they, they take that in. Like there's a, like when you have a chance to, you know, give people the information, you know, be like, Oh, that, that you thought, you know, black bear hunting, we didn't eat the meat. We actually do. Here's the, you know, fish and wildlife conservation act law that actually makes that required. Um, all the, I, I would say the majority of people that I can engage on that level, take the new information and, and change their thought processes about that on with something like black bear hunting and the, the orphaning of cubs scientific evidence is, is good for that. Um, I touched on some of it, but there's been studies, you know, after the cancellation of the spring bear hunt in, in studies from Manitoba that showed that, you know, orphaning is extremely rare. We've got our, you know, uh, data from our, you know, enforcement branch, of our, of our government that shows that no one's been charged with orphaning a cub in the whole history of the, you know, the pilot project, the people who are, or there are people who are opposed to the spring bear hunt that are opposed to the hunting of bears period. So it's, it's, if, if they're putting forward the, you know, the, the orphaning, you know, argument and you can present evidence against that, that doesn't really change sort of their core, you know, they're opposed to the, to the hunting of spring bears. Um, and then to kind of go to you, to your other end of the conversation, you know, the question about, um, you know, people who sort of distrust, like, how do I know that that's actually sort of, you know, 
good science that the that the MNRF is is doing or the government in general is doing. Um, two sort of angles on it. One of it gets a lot of their stuff gets published and peer reviewed, so it goes through that process. But also there's there's folks like myself, professional staff at the OFAH, and, and we do that scrutiny. So we, you know, get a government report and we read through it and we okay, we ask questions about the methodology and, you know, what were the assumptions and, and we do that due diligence too um, to make sure that the scientific, you know, information is solid. So if someone asks us, like, do we believe this? We can say like, well, yeah, we do because, you know, this is the process that they took and this is the proper way to do it. And we're confident that, you know, to this degree as to their results. Um, and that's a lot of what we do at the OFH is just scrutinize things that are happening by the government. Yeah. Yep. And, and provide comment and input feedback back on, on stuff. Yeah. I mean, part of what seems to get really messy in these conversations, public conversations, especially with bears, I'm sure it happened with the Ontario bear situation is kind of these, these clash of ideologies or, or philosophies that can't be reconciled and everything gets muddled up in kind of a conversation that probably shouldn't happen like apples and oranges. And I think that's the classic example is, you know, saying, okay, here's the scientific argument. Here's the evidence. It's based on, you know, um, this way of thinking, you know, if you're going to harvest a bear, then what's a safe harvest level. Here's the numbers we're meeting it. We're not meeting it like that, that kind of a process that comes up against a, it's just morally wrong. Um, bears are different than a moose and somebody has a different ideology is that ideology gets mixed up in challenging the science. And there's, it, for whatever reason, I don't know if this happened, it happened with the grizzly bear thing in BC, if it happened in Ontario with the black bear hunt, it did, why, why do people have that problem? Do you think of like just saying, okay, we're, we're just going to purely talk about this on an ideological, philosophical, moral basis and run those through, or we're going to strictly talk about it on a numbers basis. It's the philosophical ideology conversation seems to be the most difficult one for hunters and non-hunters to have. It is. And I think it's totally fine for people to hold you know, different ethical views on different practices. And that's Absolutely. in no way limited to hunting. That's, that's everything where, where the problem arises is when those views disproportionately shape wildlife management to the contrary of scientific evidence. So the, you know, the, one of the pillars of the North American model of wildlife conservation is that uh, science guides policy. And when you deviate from that, you get into really dangerous waters. And I think a good example of that related to black bears is that, so you have people who are ethically opposed to the hunting of black bears, and they think that that stance should dictate basically dictate that we don't have black bears in, like we don't have black bear hunting in the province but i'm really uncomfortable with that because in my mind that opens the door to a, any sort of ethical argument about black bears and at the other end of that spectrum are people who view black bears as vermin 
and and you know if you're going to open the door to a purely ethical argument around not hunting black bears in my mind you're also opening the door to a, a ethical argument on you know putting a bounty back on them and treating them as vermin neither of which i think well not think neither of which we want and both of which are like sort of it's an extremely dangerous door to open and I, that's why I firmly believe in that, you know, we let science, you know, guide policy is something sustainable. Is it legal? And then we use that as the, as the basis for how we manage wildlife in Ontario and North America in general. Yeah. That's a great way of looking at it. You know, I've never, never really seen it from that frame of when you open up that ethical, that ethical discussion. Uh, Others have said, you know, they've called that the danger of wildlife management by the ballot box, right? Because it's just purely based on these ideologies or is, is that opens the door for that other end of the spectrum to equally take over the conversation and dominate. Yeah. I mean, you could literally have that conversation and emotion win over a political decision and we're dumping poison out of aircraft and with the goal of eradicating black bears out of Ontario because they eat bird feeders or something, you know, like it. it <laughs> and so I love the way you said that. It's just like they, they're the ends of the spectrum that are potentially equal weight to like move, move forward. And is that what we as a society want to have happen and i don't think anybody does like you said nobody would want the the exterminate end of the of the ideology to to trump and it's like well i think there's a lot of people that don't want the the uh the the absolute no hunting compassionate you know pat every bear on the bum um give them a a, an award type (laughs) philosophy either right like it's it's uh you know, one of the things I've sort of learned too about being involved in government is there's our elected government, elected officials um, that have um, party, party platforms and philosophies, but then we have the bureaucracies within the civil service that a lot of times bureaucracies, the upper echelon of the bureaucratic part of the government, the, the civil workers, um, they are actually the ones that bring stability to a province or territory because they sort of will move different governments kind of back to this central sort of position um, because it's not always a good thing in a four-year term to be like having provinces make these wide swings in economics or wildlife management or natural resource policy. So um I think, you know, the things you're saying about messages and information and evidence and sort of sticking to science-based really, to me, resonates with how government works. And I think how the general population works is they're kind of looking for that that middle middle ground, the middle bell curve, which is kind of reasonable where most of the people can sort of agree with it. So, so maybe... Um, Give us a little snapshot just of the of the pilot projects. Uh, we've, we've touched on them a couple of times, but didn't really explain what what those were, why, or what the goals of them were. Right. So the spring bear hunt was canceled in in ninety nine, and then from ninety nine to twenty thirteen, we only had a a fall bear hunt. Um, 
then in 2014, um, the spring bear hunt was reinstated for residents only in eight northern wildlife management units that had uh, high incidences of, of human bear conflict. So that um, that limited pilot was in place for uh, two years. And then in 2016, it was expanded to all um, 88 wildlife management units that have fall bear hunts. Um, and it was opened up to non-residents. So essentially it was a return of the spring bear hunt, but for a limited uh, time duration. Um, that then ran um, due to sunset on you know June 15th, 2020, um, at which point, you know, well, we continue to have our pressure to say we need certainty for what the spring bear hunt's gonna look like in 2021 and beyond. Um, a lot of really interesting things were were learned um, from the the spring bear hunt. I think one of the biggest ones was the broad question of sustainability, sort of sustainability at a provincial level. Um, the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry says about a 10% provincial harvest is sustainable. Um, and for all the years of the pilot um, that we have data on, which was up to, it now includes 2019, um, the, both the combined spring and fall hunts were below that that 10%, um, you know, that 10% that threshold. Now, you can't just necessarily paint a brush over the entire province, right? Because there's going to be, you know, more pressure here, less, less, you know, less resources there for bears. So there's going to be variation, um, which is why we have the, the barbed wire hair traps to look at that individual variability. But at least at the provincial scale, we saw that, you know, we are below that, that 10% threshold. Um, the other really important thing was, I think it really put, um, you know, another, I don't know, nail, the best metaphor I can come up with is nail in the coffin, but it's not, it's not, I think the best one, but about the, the, the orphaning argument, because, um, there was a huge amount of, um, you know, um, enforcement branch conservation officer scrutiny on the spring bear hunt. And over all the years of the pilot, not a single hunter was charged with shooting a sow with cubs or a cub in the spring season. So really, I mean, you go back to 99 and pre that argument was this is a sustainable hunt and orphaning is not an issue. And now the, the pilot project just reinforced that, it, you know, provincially it's sustainable and orphaning doesn't look like it's an issue. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty intensive structure for, for a pilot hunt. Oh, that's, that's, that's good. So it's basically, it's a, it's a real time experiment using hunting adaptive, adaptive management, right? Like a real, a real world experiment. Um, that that's, that's super, a super cool idea. Um, now when you say sustainability, I think this is worth just kind of like, like defining this for folks, especially cause this seems to be a sticking point, you know, for some people, like people will say, like, are you talking about sustainability of the flow of animals to hunters, like harvesting X number or, or more, or is it the biological sustainability concept saying we're going to remove bears 
no, not above a certain level because then natural dynamics of bear populations aren't influenced by hunting. Like there's, there's the two different notions, right? Like it, I think one sort of like got an agricultural like nuance about it, like sustainable flow of timber or, or wheat or whatever versus how you're not trying to impact a wildlife population. So what, what was it for Ontario or was it both? So going back to like the, the start of our conversation from an OFH point of view, our, our primary goal is always for the conservation of the resource. So we don't support anything that is going to put at risk that population from ensuring that we have it, you know, into the future. Um, so, so at its core, ecological sustainability is the key one. It's, you know, making sure that population is at a level that it, it allows it to fulfill all its necessary sort of processes to be self-sustaining. Um, but potentially, you know, not at a level that's so high that it starts to incur problems. Um, and those, those, you know, potential problems come into the, all the other types of sustainability. So, you know, economic sustainability, social sustainability, cultural sustainability. Um, and those ones, especially, you know, you're talking social sustainability, they have, you know, aspects that are outside of the actual biology of the bear. It's that human bear conflict stuff we, we talked about. Um, and, you know, ensuring social sustainability of black bears isn't just about harvest management, it's about education and educating people how to be, you know, bear wise and avoid conflict and what to do if there is conflict. Um, because if, if there's always the risk that, you know, something will become socially unsustainable and then that can negatively impact, you know, a wildlife species. So we're really striving for all of those levels of sustainability with the goal of the conservation of black bears in Ontario. Right, right. And I think that does, that, that philosophy comes back full circle to the beginning of our conversation saying that that conservation framework that you're talking about is what has allowed black bears to still occupy 98% of their range in, mm -hmm. in, in Canada, right? Like that's, and we've been harvesting them for long before Europeans made contact in North America and continued, continued through, uh, you know, this, the, the colonization period of North America. So it's, it is really, uh, a testament to that, to that philosophy, I think. Yeah. One of the things that I think were one of the many things that worried hunters during the cancellation of the spring bear hunt was the fact that that pendulum of black bear value to the broader public started to shift. Like it started to, you know, we worked so hard to get it as, you know, a valued game species and with, you know, the perception that the, the government was making bad decisions around black bear management in the, you know, the end of the nineties with the cancellation, that pendulum started to swing to them being, you know, more of a nuisance animal. And that was really something that was very worrisome to, you know, the OFH and the hunting community because that gets dangerous for the animal itself. Um, and so, so that was very much part of it, you know, our advocacy around the spring bear hunt is, you know, getting that, make sure that value, that value of that animal, you know, 
and that, that's that's value to hunters. That's value as part of Ontario's biodiversity. That's value to the economy of Ontario. It's all of that is being recognized in that animal. Um, one of the things that you know we continue to work on black bear management, and one of the things we've we've been talking to the MNRF about or raising with them is you know, expanding bear hunting opportunities in the southern fringe of black bear, um, black bear range. So we have black bears south of where we have black bear hunts. Um, and sometimes it, it's literally like, you know, the adjacent wildlife management unit. And there's a couple in southern Ontario where we're really hearing a lot of these agricultural conflicts Um and those examples I gave earlier about, you know, the hunter that sees the black bear but can't harvest it and is frustrated because of the damage, like those are from direct conversations I've had with people. So even even on like small scale of Ontario, we see that, you know, where there's not any sort of hunt, the perception of black bears can be different than in an area where there is a hunt. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a key, that's a key word that you said. It's the perception of it as well, right? Like it's, and, and I've always sort of subscribed to this idea that perception's reality uh, and we have to deal with that reality. If people perceive things a certain way, that's real. And so we should, we should always take people's perceptions of a situation seriously. And yeah, I mean, I know for myself, that's a, that is a huge concern when I see those social shifts in tolerance for wildlife go from, you know, people that are like, we don't want to hunt them. We like our wildlife, all these sorts of things to, to the average non hunter community, all of a sudden being like, I now hate these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did, I did another podcast yesterday where I talk about like, you know, the one that kill the Canada geese in Stanley park over in Vancouver. Cause there's too many of them. And I see it in like urban deer. It was like, Oh, it's the great thing. Like, or, Oh, look, there's deer in our yard and put out feeders to all of a sudden, like your average non hunter homeowner are buying, um, paintball guns cause they're trying to haze deer. And even to the point where they're buying crossbows hmm. and they don't know what to do. And so you see these, news stories of deer walking around with, with, you know, bolts through their nose or, you know, in their, you know, those sorts of things. And that to me is one of the biggest dangers of this concept of this social shift in valuing or losing value of a wildlife species because, of, because a hunt doesn't exist is you do get people that start to do some pretty inhumane things to them. And the more humane thing might be just to harvest some of them. Yeah. And that, that's oh. an argument that, that we make a lot coming from the, you know, the, the best argument for these is always white-tailed deer because, you know, the impacts of white-tailed deer overabundance is, is so well documented. Um, we we frequently use, you know, white-tailed deer to, to tell that story about, you know, how hunting is good for the animals themselves. Like by keeping, I, t I touched on for black bears, you know, um, ecological sustainability and it's, it's even more true for, for deer really, because deer can get, they reproduce faster than black bears, obviously can get overabundant. Um, more wildlife is not always better for the, you know, ecosystem. And so, um, it's just, it's, it's really good to demonstrate to people how, you know, the sustainable, 
controlled harvest of a species boosts the overall health of the ecosystem. And, you know, in the case of white-tailed deer, biodiversity as well. Um, I think it's just, it's so much of what we have to do at Hunters is educate the public um, because so much of the view of hunting is, is just from, you know, misinformation or a lack of awareness. Yeah, totally. Totally. Wow. That's a, that's a really good breakdown of that whole story, man. I've learned a lot about, you know, what happened. I did, you know, did some research, like I said, touched, touched on it and made people aware of this whole scenario, but, uh, I really love hearing it directly from you that knows so much more about it. Um, a lot it's of a, good it's advice a good in there. Story too. I mean, you yeah, just, it you is. Just everything nowadays, it's especially with what's going on in in BC. There's all this stuff, you know, stuff's being taken away, and it kind of seems like there's not a lot of wins. And you know, it's it's good to hear that. Hey, you know, you guys did have the hunt taken away, and then you got it back. It's like a little glimmer of hope that you know, not all is lost and dark and gloomy out there. It's <laughs> like it's it's really positive message it's really good to hear absolutely because yeah. i think it's i mean in some of our emails you talked about you know clay newcomb and is you know hold the line thing and um yeah guard, and guard the gate guard the gate sorry guard the gate yeah and i kind of mentioned how you know people like the general public perceives bear hunting differently than than deer hunting or moose hunting so it is it is like a a vulnerable hunt because it's sort of like a very polarizing hunt and um you know 20 years of effort to get it back and i i i probably have not in any way done justice to the effort that was put on by sort of you know other people at the ofh and my predecessors and our elected board members and our general members i i started the ofh in 2018 so i'm here at the end i wasn't here for for most of it um and just the huge amount of effort that it took to to get to this point and it, it like you said chris it is a big success but it was a huge amount of work and i think that idea of you know needing to whenever you see one of these you know campaigns to to remove a hunt it's it's that's where you got to put your effort is you yeah. know it, right away is if if there is if if there's no scientific evidence and you know no sustainability concerns and it's purely this you know people don't like this hunt and think it should go away i think we really got to make sure that we we, we address those you know right yeah, up absolutely. with logical arguments and good science yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, uh, it's, it's it echoes the exact sort of philosophy in wildlife management, right? Like, it's a lot easier to like keep them on the landscape or keep it in the hunting regulations than it is to do what you did to get it back or recover it from uh, from the brink of extinction, kind of thing. But uh, I do echo what Curtis said. Like, I mean, there is hope. It is a tremendous amount of hard work. Um, if you're from British Columbia and you are listening to this and you are thinking in the back of your mind, the grizzly hunt, um, it's only been 2018. Um, so it took Ontario hunters two decades um, to bring this back to, to full uh, fruition. But like he said, it was, it was 
two solid decades of working. I mean, there's an election cycle every four years in there, right? Which is a huge upheaval. Even if the same government gets reelected, they shuffle everything around. You got a whole bunch of new people you got to go meet and build a relationship with and try to introduce them to this, this stuff. But it just sounds like you guys were so guys and gals were focused and just handed this, the torch off to the next, you know, group and kept, kept this going. And if, uh, if you want a grizzly hunt back in British Columbia, or you don't want to lose a black bear hunt in, you know, in Alberta or, or wherever, um, I think there's, there's a lot to learn here and what, what Keith is, is told in the Ontario story. It's, it's, uh, yeah, you gotta be in it for the long run. You gotta be, be pretty organized. Mm-hmm. So, so if, uh, if we had to boil this down, like to say we say somebody only listened to like the next couple of minutes, what, <laughs> what are, what are your, I, I think they're obvious, the threads in this conversation of what hunters need to do, no matter where you live, um, you know, to kind of, uh, uh, prevent these sort of things from happening. What do you, what would you say? What are the top three things? So the first one is, you know, join your provincial or territorial federation um, just because you can work better together. Um, The second one is, you know, listen carefully to what the other side is saying and be willing or be ready to, you know, address that with facts and science. And I think also you know, in a, in a rational manner, I think we have evidence on our side for these things and we, we don't need, we shouldn't be shy about, you know, sharing it. And then the third thing is keep up the pressure. Um, it, it takes time, you know, be, be willing to be in things for the long haul. Hopefully it doesn't take the long haul, but, um, you know, things will drop off other people's radar unless you keep it front and center. Yeah. No, it's a super, super good message. Boil it down to those three things. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, I think if you want to do one thing that's going to help, um, making sure that you're a member of your provincial or territorial federation is huge. Uh, having your voice heard within the federation, uh, is important. Um, I do see a, like this growing trend of like new hunting groups popping up almost every week, a new group with a new mandate and a new philosophy, but they're not becoming part of, uh, a provincial or territorial federation. And it's fragmenting us down into really small groups. It makes, uh, a big organization like OFA have a tougher time in amplifying your voice politically when, when their numbers are fragmented. So, uh, I always believe that's, that's a, like you said, that's the number one step that a hunter in a province or territory should be doing. So that, that's a super good message. Yeah. Fantastic. Man. Thanks Keith. That was yeah, just, that was, uh, that was awesome. Really cool. good insight. Some good messages there. Thanks for having me. It, I don't think I've ever got to just chat about black bears for this long. So it was, it was great. <laughs> oh, that's that's yeah. awesome. Cool. All right, folks, a little change of subject here. Turkey season is fast approaching, but unfortunately with turkey season comes a grim statistic 
that 60% of turkey hunters will not harvest a turkey this season. Lucky for you, we have a solution to help swing the odds in your favor. Head over to the Hunter Conservationist website and check out our new Wild Turkey Hunting Masterclass. This is a course that's built with the new or beginner turkey hunter at, in mind. It's a work at your own pace online turkey hunting seminar. It's got around six hours of content with over a hundred individual videos aimed at arming you with the turkey hunting tactics, gear, biology, and history. So if you're not sure how to pattern your shotgun for turkey season or how to break down and butcher your turkey after you've had a successful harvest, don't worry. All of that and more is covered in the new Wild Turkey Masterclass. Don't be left out of the roost this turkey season. Arm yourself with knowledge and don't be part of the 60%. Hand in hand with our masterclass comes our second hunter conservationist media film. The Wild Turkey is Calling is a short film that follows myself and Mark on our 2020 spring turkey hunt. Not your typical turkey hunting film. This follows the mind of a turkey hunter as we try to enter the world of the turkey. Get yourself hyped up for the upcoming turkey season and give this film a watch. Not only will it get your fix of gobbles, but it'll also make you think a little bit. We're very excited to share this film with you guys, so make sure you go give that a watch. March 15th, that comes out? March 15th, which is the release date of this podcast. So as soon as you finish listening, head on over and have a look. <clears throat> we would like to thank iHunter for supporting this episode. We feel it's a tool that every hunter should be carrying with them, and it will give you the confidence to know your hunting area as best as possible, especially with the private land, public land, crown land add-on. It's a fantastic feature, and we love it. Once again, we would like to thank the team over at Deluxe Wall Tents for being the sponsor of this episode. Hunting season is fast approaching, and whether you're headed up north for the hunt of a lifetime or just looking for a way to be the warmest, driest, and coolest guy in hunting camp, go look into these guys. It's a piece of gear we use often, and like I said, we really believe in it. We've hunted out of travel trailers for most of my hunting career, and I can honestly say I like coming back to a wall tent and a wood stove more than a trailer. I don't know if it brings you back to a simpler time, but whatever they're doing, it makes you feel like a badass living off the land, fur hat wearing trapper, hunter, gatherer. Deluxe wall tents, they're Canadian made, family owned. Go show those guys some support. Awesome. You bet. You bet. And um, just a reminder with turkey season coming up, uh, the Hunter Conservationist podcast is a supporting member of the North American Non-Lead Partnership. I have my boxes of non-lead turkey loads sitting on the desk right beside me. Uh, I'd encourage you to uh, do some research into them. The non-lead shotgun shells can actually um, potentially deliver more pellets downrange with more lethal impact than, than lead. So even though if it's not legally required in your province, I think it's the ethical thing for a hunter to do, to be responsible for every pellet that leaves the end of your barrel. The non-lead um, North American Non-Lead Partnership, you can find them online. They have all kinds of cool information. And just so you know, in Canada, you can buy ammunition online, use your PAL number, and it can be shipped through a shipping company called Canpar. So if they don't have it in your local store, go online and look for it. Man, great conversation, Keith. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. 
Oh, thanks a lot for having me. I got one more, <clears throat> excuse me, one more question. Shoot. What's the deal with that whitetail skull behind you? It's got like a really funky. <laughs> yeah, oh, I've, yeah. been, I've been looking at that all. <laughs> he's all got episode. this. He's got this skull uh, uh, on his shelf behind him. It's a whitetail buck, and it's got this weird club, little club of a antler on the one side. It's it's got a it's got a brow tine, but then it like just clubs off the end of the brow tine. So this was uh, a deer that. Uh, my friend Dave took um, up by sort of Ottawa, Eastern Ontario. And uh, he was, this was a huge deer. This was a, a real big deer. But the best I can figure out is, is this antler got damaged while in velvet and just never developed properly. But what I find kind of really funny about the skull is it will not sit flat on a desk, right? Obviously, it, so for people who can't see it, it's a you know a four point on one side. It would have been a beautiful eight point on like if it was you know typical. Um, but you put this down and it tips instantly off to the side, no, it's which so I can unbalanced. only which I can only imagine what that deer had to go through to yeah exactly continuously be carrying his head cocked to one side, He's always turning left. Yeah, <laughs> walking <laughs> in circles. So no, this was a a, a really neat deer. Um, you know, I cleaned this up for him and I haven't been able to give it to him because I haven't been able to see him with COVID because we live in different cities. So it gets to, you know, grace my desk and be my <laughs> kind of, you know, cool thing in the background of my Zoom videos. Uh, no, it is. It, it is an interesting piece. So I think even with uh, even with COVID and all of those provisions, it's like uh, four to six weeks and like nine tenths ownership kind of thing. So you're probably good to call it yours now. So I might, if you see a real angry comment below this podcast from a guy named Dave, it's probably going to be like, give me my skull back. <laughs> give me my, give me my non-typical back. No, yeah. appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah. Cool. Thanks again, Keith, for making time. Great, great information. Great story. My pleasure. All right, everybody. We will see you in the next episode. 